Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You know, before I actually get into my sermon this morning... I probably have to deal with an issue of jealousy, that you're all jealous that you weren't the lay reader this morning and had to read all those names. Good job, Ron. (laughs) Better him than me, let me tell you. (laughs) Said he doesn't think Chris Darnell's really sick since he's taking his place today. Okay, on to the sermon. You know, our two readings today, maybe not at first glance, have something in common. And what they have in common is you see in both cases the Word of God being read and people listening with attentiveness. And the end result is there was an impact on their lives. That God was revealing something through His Word, and as the people heard it, they responded to it. And with that in mind, I'm actually going to turn to the Nehemiah reading and focus on that. I'm going to weave in the Gospel, but I really want to focus on the Nehemiah reading. Let me give you the setting first, because it's important to really understanding and processing this passage. The first thing is that the people had been in exile. The people of Israel had been in exile and had returned. Jerusalem was conquered in 587 B.C. Approximately 50 years later, 538 B.C., the Edict of Cyrus was delivered. What that did was allow all the people of Israel to return to their homes, and in particular the people of Jerusalem. See, because what the Babylonians did when they conquered a land is they took all the educated, all the wealthy, all the learned, especially the religious leaders because those often crossed, and they took them out of the land so that an organized rebellion could not take place. So in 538, the people were allowed to return. And when they returned, they found their homes in ruins. They found the wall broken down. They found a temple in ruins. And they had to rebuild their lives. Only the poor of the land were left and remained, and they couldn't really do a whole lot. So the people came and they rebuilt. And their first priority was rebuilding the temple. And you would think that that would draw them together and unify them, and that they would focus on worship. But in fact, that really didn't happen as much as Ezra the priest had hoped. Meanwhile, Nehemiah we are told at the beginning of the book, is the cupbearer to the king. Now, that doesn't sound terribly impressive, but it's a very trusted position. And you had to be educated to be in that position as well as trusted. And he was privy to all that went on in the kingdom because he was always around the king. So he knew a lot. His brother came from Jerusalem. Nehemiah asked, how's it, how's it going? And he said, well, it's really terrible. The people aren't organized. Things are broken down. Nehemiah weeps, begins to pray asks the Lord, what do you want me to do? Give me a vision for my life. Am I to go do something about this? The Lord responds, gives him a vision. He goes to Jerusalem. 
What he had to deal with was not only a broken down wall, that if any of you have ever seen pictures of the Jerusalem wall, it's huge. And so he surveys, and he calls the people together, and he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild the wall. And he had to deal with, if you read the book of Nehemiah, conflicts from outside, threats from outside, and conflicts from inside. So he's dealing with a lot of conflict, a lot of obstruction. And at one point, the people had to not only do the work, but also defend themselves in terms of weapons. And so one commentator said that in the one hand, they had a sword, the other, they had a trowel. And they had to guard each other's back. And the amazing thing was, in 52 days, the wall was built. 52 days. So what do they decide to do at that point? Ezra the priest, Nehemiah, soon to be governor, calls everyone together, and they read from the book of the law. In other words, the scriptures, the first five books. And they have people explain it to them all day long. All day. They stood there all day long and listened to the Word of God read and explained because what they understood, what God had done, is He restored the people to the land. That He was faithful to His promises. That He allowed them to rebuild the the temple so they had a place to worship. And now the wall was built, which defined them and allowed them to be united and allowed them to feel secure. It was symbolic of what they would experience in their hearts and lives. That God was bringing His people together. That God was fulfilling His promise to restore His people. That now they had access to the Word of God and they had a place to worship. So at the end of that 52 days, the people are brought together. And the wall defines them. The wall allowed them to be one people and to defend their city. And what they said was, now that we have this new beginning, we want to focus on what is central. What is essential to who we are as we define ourselves. It's God's will, God's word, and His vision for what it means to be the people of God. And that's what happens. That they read from the word of God and people explain it to them. And what they discovered anew is God is faithful to His promises. When God promises something, He's faithful. He lives into it. And He fulfills it. And that's what we see going on. That's what we see in the Old Testament. And if you heard the reading from the Gospel, the last verse that's in your bulletin says, And Jesus says, This is fulfilled today before you. Once again, you have this picture that the people are being deported. And then the prophets say, but let me tell you, you're going to come back and God's going to restore His people. And He does. And you have the prophecies of the Old Testament that God's going to bring a Messiah to save His people. And He does. And that's what Jesus is saying. Today this has been fulfilled in your presence. But how do we know that? How do we know that God fulfills His promises? How do we know what it looks like to be His people defined, described, 
to live into His vision for our lives. The way we know is through His Word. That's the first thing that we see in this passage. If you hear it, it says the people were attentive to the book of the law. They came, they listened, they wanted to hear. They were hungry, they were thirsty for the Word of God. They realized that they had drifted. That they had left His way. And that the Lord was bringing them back, that He was faithful. And the hunger and thirst wasn't just about an intellectual exercise. It wasn't just, I want to get this knowledge in my head. It was about knowing the Word of God so much and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and your life that you are transformed. That part comes later. You are transformed by the Word of God. That's what happens here. In a sense, what happens over this crowd is a holy hush. And you need to realize how many people we're talking about here. If you add up all the names, the ones that Ron read, including those and others that were around, and all the families that were described, and all the people who did the work, and all the people that were, quote-unquote, of age, you would come up with approximately 50,000 people. 50,000. And they all come together, and they all want to hear the Word of God, and they want to hear it explained, and they all stand and listen all day. Because there was a hunger. Because there was a thirst for the Word of God. The people wanted God's presence and His vision and His will alive in their lives. And so as they listened, there was this, if you will, holy hush. Because they wanted to hear. Because they were so hungry. You know, sometimes when we want to hear something, and we know it's going to be meaningful for our lives, there's this quiet that comes over us. And you know, it's interesting, it's because in those days it was so rare. For the people to gather together and hear God's Word, it was so rare. When they were deported, there's a good chance that many of them had oral versions, they could tell stories, but they didn't have access to the written Word. You know, how do we treat rare items? Things we call rare, at least, like diamonds and gold. We attach to them great value. See, and they didn't have access to the written Word of God. And because it was rare, they treasured it. They valued it. See, I think sometimes that's one of the reasons we don't value the Word of God. Because you can get your hand on a Bible anywhere. Most of you probably have multiple versions. And so we take it for granted. We can go to church and hear the Bible read. We can pull it out, I mean, if we really need to. But we have it. But the question is, do we treat it with value? And not only because in and of itself the Word of God is valuable, But what is behind the Word of God is valuable because it reveals God Himself to us. That's why. And how we are to live as the people of God, how we are to live as that holy people, set apart by Him for Him. 
That's why it's so valuable. So the people, we are told, were attentive to it. And then what do they do? When they hear this Word of God read and they hear it explained, what do they immediately do? They lift up the Lord. They want to worship Him. Because what they've said is, what we hear is of tremendous value to our lives. And so their response is, we want to lift up the Lord in our lives. I mean, if you really recognize, Jesus would talk about this later, the Gospel according to John chapter 4. He would say, you must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. The truth is the Word of God. It tells us who God is. And what it means to truly worship Him with our lives. That He is of worth for our lives. But in spirit. That this just isn't something that's superficial. It's not just an intellectual exercise. This word is meant to penetrate our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we really understand who God is. That we really understand what He's calling us to. To be His people. You know, in a sense, what we're saying is, the Word of God, because of what it leads to and who's behind it, is of ultimate worth for our lives. Now, See, there's another thing that we've grown numb to, is superlatives. You know what I mean by superlatives, right? When you're watching television and you see advertisements, ultimate tide. You will never get your clothes any cleaner than with this detergent. The ultimate toothpaste, right? You will never have whiter, cleaner teeth that are cavity-free. Just wait. I mean, there's the Nissan Altima. That is not the ultimate car, trust me. It's a good car. But they're going to come out with better. And you know the reality is, you wash your clothes with ultimate tide, you're going to need to wash them again. You brush your teeth with this toothpaste that's absolutely incredible. Please brush, brush your teeth again. The reality is all of those answers are temporary. They're all temporal. And the reality is the ultimate behind that is you. Because the goal is to make you feel good. It's to make you feel more pretty or confident or whatever. And the reality is, it is short-lived. Because your body will decay and you will die. And your clothes eventually will go out of style or won't fit. It's all temporary. And we say this stuff with superlatives that can't match the ultimate worth of the Lord. That can't match the ultimate worth of His Word that leads to Himself. And that's what we sometimes miss. And that's what we take for granted. Because it's His Word speaking into our lives that is about now and 
eternity. And it's not just about your appearance or how you feel about yourself. It's about a total transformation of who you are. So that you can live this life with God's will and God's vision and God's presence and God's blessing. That's what He wants for your life. Don't miss it. But if you don't know His Word, you don't know His promises. You don't really know who He is. You might have an idea, but that might be wrong. You might have a sense, but you don't really have a sense of His incredible faithfulness, His overwhelming presence and power in your life, which is what He wants for you. There's a cost. It costs Jesus His life. And it costs you your life. Not just a little time here and there. Not just a fleeting thought. It costs you your life. The whole of who you are. But the return is eternal. The return is ultimate. In fact, the return as we see here, played out in the Scriptures, is that you become His holy and joyful people. That's what He wants for you. It might not sound exactly like what you want, but as you study His Word and you discover what it means to be holy, set apart, if you will, the wall that's put around you, that's put around you by the Holy Spirit, not because it's exclusive, but because you have definition, you have guidance, you have His presence in your life and you invite other people into it. But that's what it means to be holy. That His wall, if you will, is around you and defines you. The word holy means what? Set apart. Different. Defined by the Holy Spirit. Defined by the Word of God. Alive in your life. That we become His holy people. And what we see that looking like in Nehemiah in particular is a wonderful flow. The first thing that you see is as the... the Teachers teach. And as the people are explained the Word of God, what happens is they're convicted. That this isn't just skin deep. This isn't just superficial. This isn't just about appearance. They are convicted. That's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. When we know we're sinful and we need a Savior. When we know we failed and yet He loves us and accepts us. When we know we're broken and He's the one that brings holiness wholeness and healing to our lives. That's what He wants us to understand. There's conviction. Conviction of that which is contrary to His will and conviction of His love. And the response is tears. They weep. That's when I need the child crying. They weep because it penetrates their hearts and their lives. And they know it. They know the depth of their need and they know know the depth of God's love that meets that need and beyond. 
So there's weeping. And Ezra says, I want to change the focus of those tears. Because this is not a day of sadness. This is a day of joy. See, and that's the movement of the Holy Spirit. From conviction to the tears of release. Because that's what they are. To the tears of joy. But there's a celebration here. Because what, a, what God has done in our lives, what God has done around us, and what God wants to do with and for His people. So there's a celebration. It says there's going to be feasting, and there's going to be wine, and there's going to be plenty. And notice the movement that we do in our worship every Sunday. The Word of God read and proclaimed. And then we move to, if you will, the feast. That there's a hunger in our hearts and our lives for the Word of God. That's when the Holy Spirit is moving. And then there's a fulfilling of that as God pours out His Holy Spirit through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ that we symbolize in the feast we call the Eucharist or Holy Communion every Sunday. That's what God wants us to experience. That's what He wants us to know. And that's why the weeping turns to joy. You know, if you look around, not only in our country, but in our church, There's an ignorance of the Word of God or even disdain of the Word of God. That people, frankly, just don't know the Word. I mean, we have Bibles everywhere, but we don't know His Word. And sometimes, if you really look at the media, you'll even see disdain for the Word of God, disdain for preachers, Disdain even for Christians. You know, it's amazing to me. Now, this is an old survey, I realize, and it might date me a little bit. But I remember back when I was in college, or maybe just after college, and they did this statistic, how many people could name the four Beatles, but how many people couldn't name the four gospel writers. Or how many people here could name numerous people on their favorite football team, basketball team, and name very few of the books of the Bible or even the Twelve Apostles? Now I realize in some ways those are trivial, but it points out We don't know our word. How are we going to have God's power in our lives? How are we going to have God's definition of what it means to live according to His will, His way? How do we know what it means to seek His promises, to seek the power of His Spirit in our lives, unless we know His promises and how the Holy Spirit can move in our lives? We need to be people of the Word of God and allow God to speak into our lives 
not just occasionally on Sundays, but every day of our lives. That we want to hear His voice. That we want to hear from Him. That we want access to that definition of what it means to be His people. To be holy. But not only holy, to be joyful. Because we learn to enjoy life the way He intended us to. To enjoy His presence every day. To worship Him, not just on Sundays, but every day in our time with Him. Because we see the worth that He is to us. And the worth that we are to Him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That Christ showed His love for us while we were still in sin apart from Him. Because He wants us to know His salvation, His love, His power. Paul writes that in Romans. Do you understand? Do you understand how essential and important it is to know and what God wants you to experience? What we'll experience is living in the luxury of His grace instead of just the luxury of material things. What we'll discover in the process is, is what it means to truly worship Him and not just worship the things in this world, in this life. Fame and fortune that we tend to worship. That we learn what it means to worship Him, to lift Him up constantly in our lives and have access to His Holy Spirit. You know, if you want to know His love, if you want to know His promises, if you want to know His trustworthiness, if you want to know what He desires for your holiness and joy, then you need to know Him and His will through His Word. Let me close by reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. And listen to this in what we've been talking about. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a set-apart people, God's own people. For what purpose? That you may proclaim the mighty acts of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. While you were yet sinners, He called you out of darkness. While you were in exile from Him, He called you out of darkness and He called you to be His people. Next verse. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received His mercy. He's given you the person, the grace, the gift of Jesus Christ, who was a man of His Word, the Word incarnate, and is faithful to His promises. This is what He wants for you. And what He wants you to do in this world, in this life, as the people of Israel stood to hear the Word of God, 
He wants you to take a stand for Him. That the promises that maybe someone else made for you as a baby when you were baptized, that you make your own and you take a stand. That you will be His people. That you will live according to His promises and His will. That you will allow Him to define your life because you know what it means because you know His Word. If that's what you intend for your life, take a stand now. Right now. Say, that's what I want for my life. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord God, I'm amazed to look back on a people who struggled so much to rebuild a city, a temple, a wall. But what became ultimate was your word and worshiping you. Lord, I pray that we would be such a people. Lord, that in a culture that is broken down, that is focused on the material, that many live in exile in having a relationship with you, where agnosticism and atheism and amorality are spreading. there's a hunger in the land and they don't know where to find the food. Lord, I pray that we would satisfy our hunger on your word. That we would live with that holy hush filled with joy. That we would learn what it means to be your people. Lord, I pray that we would also be people who proclaim this truth to others. Because we know your word. Because we trust your word. Because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength. That you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. That this day we would stand on the promises of your word this day and every day. And I pray this in Jesus' name.